All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. It's great to see you all. Well, you just heard about one of our amazing local serve partners, Congregations for Kids, or CFK for short, and they're doing some incredible and necessary work um, in the foster care system here in our city. And let me tell you, this has been a busy, busy week for them. It's been a busy, busy week for them. I was at one of their events this week as they just poured on and loved on foster care families and celebrated social workers. It was amazing. And let me tell you, the, the effort that they put in, effort they put in to love those that they are called to serve is absolutely unmatched. And Nicole Taylor, who you just saw, the executive director of, of CFK, is a part of our New City family. She's a part of our New City family. We could not be more proud of the work that her and her team are doing for social care workers and foster care families in our city. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to be prayerful about how God wants to use you to get involved with CFK, whether it's through your time or a donation or with just prayer. You, you can find out more about them at cfknc.org. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, a special welcome to you. We're excited you're here. My name is Rodney. I'm the Matthews pastor. And today we're beginning a brand new sermon series, a brand new Christmas sermon, sermon series entitled The Way in a Manger, The Way in a Manger. But before we dive in to our new series, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you. We honor you. We praise you for this moment, for this space and time, God. You didn't have to do it, but you did. And we're grateful, God. Today is a day that we've never seen before. It's a day that we'll never see again. So we ask, God, that you would help us to be the best that we can be today, right now in this moment. This is your moment, God. It's a holy moment. So we pray that you would move up and down these aisles, God, move in and out of our hearts. But do whatever you got to do to glorify yourself in this place today and in these people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, friends, as we begin uh, our sermon series today, um, I want to start with a question that I want you to uh, give some serious consideration. And the question is this, who or what have you been trusting to save you? Who or what have you, not your spouse, not anybody else you know, but who or what have you been trusting in to save you? If you were with us during our last series on the book of Judges, it ended in Judges 21-25 with the line, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people, the scripture says, did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And part of what we learned throughout this series is that whenever we do what's right in our own eyes, as opposed to what's right in God's eyes, there are consequences, Right? There's darkness, there's fear, there's loneliness, there's confusion, there's abandonment, all kind of things. And honestly, this is where some of us may be feeling right now, if we're honest. It's where some of us are right now. And then you add to that the complexity of the holiday season. Truth is that this time of year is not a festive or joyous time for everybody in the room. And so we want to be sensitive to that. What most always happens when we're feeling a certain way is that we turn to all kind of things and people to save us, to bring relief, to bring comfort, to bring peace. The problem with that is, is that those things could never bring the kind of peace, the kind of joy, the kind of rest and refreshing that our souls truly long for. And you know what? They were never meant to. There's only one person 
that can do that. And his name is Jesus. So over the next few weeks as we dive into this The Way in a Major series, we'll talk about Jesus as shepherd and as king. But today, we want to talk about him as our savior. Talk about him as our savior. So with that, I'm going to ask if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll focus our attention today on Matthew chapter number 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25, the word of God to the people of God. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, as we dive in, let me give a little context to what's happening here in the text. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. Begins with the genealogy of Jesus. Now, if we're honest, that's the part when we see a list of names of Scripture, that's the part that most of us skip over, right? This is a safe space. We can be honest. That's the part where most of us, when we see a list of names in Scripture, we skip right over that part. But what I need you to know about that is that every name listed is a story. Every name listed is a story. And every story undoubtedly has fear, confusion, darkness, and discouragement, among other things, somewhere embedded in it, just like our stories do. But in Matthew chapter 1, we're introduced to Joseph in the middle of a personal crisis. Joseph here is in the middle of a personal crisis. In other words, he's feeling the way many of us in this room may be feeling today. He's engaged to a young girl named Mary which in those days they call it uh, betrothal, which was a part of the Jewish culture, is similar to engagement today, only it was legally binding and it lasted for a year. And so Joseph here is made aware that Mary is with child and he's struggling because he wants to call it quits. Now, I will say I don't know a man in this room that if we were in Joseph's position would not want to call it quits. And this is where Joseph finds himself. And Joseph, like many of us in a relationship, he's in love with Mary. He's committed to her. And he believes that he loves her too until he finds out this information. And we know by verse 19 that he was heartbroken and he was disappointed because the scripture says that he wanted to break the engagement. Only he didn't want to break or disgrace her publicly because in those cultures in that time, adultery and engagement was punishable by death in some cases. And so here we are, Joseph is in the middle of a personal crisis and there's heartbreak, there's disappointment, there's confusion, there's pending divorce, and then an angel of the Lord 
speaks. An angel of the Lord speaks. Let's look at verses 20 through 23 again. I want to show you something else. It says, as he considered this, as he wrestled with what was going on in his life, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. It said, Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, here's what's going on in these three verses. The angel here is referring to the prophecy of Isaiah found in Isaiah chapter number 7. That's what he was referring to. The prophecy regarding the miracle of Jesus' birth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, mind you, Joseph is in a dream here, right? I always like to inject myself into the text, and I would probably, if I was Joseph, I would say she's pregnant by the who? The holy who? And this is where Joseph finds himself here. But I need you to know that this, this Jesus' birth, the miracle of Jesus' birth was necessary. It was both a mystery and it was a necessity. Why? Because we needed a Savior that was unlike the other things that we turned to for relief, for comfort, and for saving us. We needed a Savior that was holy and without sin, meaning it had to be from God, yet relevant and relatable to sinful man. Had to be from God, yet relevant and relatable to sinful man. The miracle of Jesus' birth, while it is incomprehensible to the cardinal mind, it is an indescribable beauty to those of us that have open hearts and minds to receive it. Because here's the truth. Jesus did for us what nobody else could do for us. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that, that one of my favorite comfort foods is what? A honey bun. Absolutely. But the more we walk with God, the more we realize that None of the things that we turn to can do what Jesus did for us because the truth is he comforts us better than our favorite comfort food. He counsels us better than our favorite therapist. And he ministers to us better than our favorite pastor. He is the high priest. He is the bridegroom, the king, and the friend that will never leave you nor forsake you. Can we take a moment to celebrate that? He is the friend and the king that will never leave you nor forsake you. That's who the angel is referring to. This is who the angel is referring to. Now, something else we see here in these three verses is both what Jesus does, he saves, and who Jesus is. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Two things that we cannot live without, his power to save and his faithful presence. These verses also remind us that Jesus meets us in our sin for the purpose of saving us from our sin. That's important. Because sometimes we feel like what we're into, what we're involved in, disqualifies us from all that God has for us. But this scripture reminds us that no matter where we are, no matter how messed up we think our life is, no matter what sins we've engaged in, what thoughts we have, he meets us in our sin for the purpose of saving us from our sin. Now, I want to use the balance of my time today to talk more specifically about what it is that Jesus saves us from. We know generally that Jesus saves us from our sin. 
But I want to talk about specifically what that is when we say he saves us from our sins. So the first thing I want to talk about Jesus saves us from is the penalty of sin. He saves us from the penalty of sin. This is more formally known as justification in theological circles. He saves us from the penalty of sin. Sadly, most of us want Jesus to save us from everything but our sin. Amen, somebody. We want Jesus to save us from everything but our sin. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's a bad situation, a bad relationship. And we say, God, save me from this horrible thing, but don't mess with the habit that got me here in the first place. Save me from this horrible thing, but God, please don't touch my habit. But his chief desire for you and I is to save us from the thing that separates us from him. The reason sin is such a big deal is because its penalty is death. That's Romans 6.23. It says the wages of sin is death. But I need you to know that death in Scripture doesn't always mean the end of our existence. It means separation from God. This is why a lot of us miss the consequence of our sin. Because we don't realize that it separates us from God. So we just go about our busy lives doing the things that we do, not realizing that a part of the way the enemy uses sin is to separate us from God, to desensitize us to the things that God has for us. I believe, and I've experienced this in my own life, that the more obedient I am to God, the more clear I am about what it is he wants me to do. And so Jesus saves you and I from the penalty of sin, that is separation from God. The goal of sin is to do just that, to bring separation from God and from one another. And the truth is, family, that God loves us and he wants us to have fellowship with him and be with him in eternity forever. In fact, this is what he designed us for. This is what he designed us for. And sin, our sin nature caused a separation between us and God, therefore making you and I deserving of the penalty of sin. But this is what he saves us from. He saves us from the penalty of sin, but he also saves us from the power of sin. The power of sin. Now, I need you to lean in on this one. I need you to lean in with me on this one. He saves us from the power of sin. This process is a process that is called sanctification. It's a process called sanctification. With that, I have a question. Are you growing in your sanctification? Are you growing in sanctification? Are you experiencing the power of Jesus over sin in your life? This is a serious question for us to wrestle with. Are you more obedient to God now than you were five years ago or a year ago or even last week? If not, you and I could be missing out on part of what Christ came to give us, and that is power, the power over sin in our lives. One commentary I studied said this. He said, for many Christians, this, the power over sin, is like an unopened gift that Jesus came to give us on Christmas. It may be that we have opened the gift of salvation from the penalty of sin, but we've neglected to open the gift of the power to conquer sin. I love Romans 6.12. It says, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not let sin, key word is control. Do not let sin control the way that you live. It goes on to say, do not give in to sinful desires. Listen to me, sanctification is not 
the absence of the presence of sin. Sanctification is not the absence of the presence of sin. It is the absence of the power of sin. It is the absence of the control of sin. So as we grow in our walk with God, certain things that we struggled with years ago should have fallen off by now. And that's how you and I can gauge where we are in our maturation process in Christ. Do I still struggle with the same things? Let me be honest with you. You may not believe this, but I used to be incredibly impatient. And if you catch me first thing in the morning, you'll be lucky to get two words out of me. This is what I did. Somebody said good morning. That's what I did. Head nod. And so God had to deal with my heart and my life related to my witness to the world. Now, I was saved. I was saved. And in the job I had at the time, it was, it was people knew that if you don't, don't engage him early, don't engage him early. And the Lord began to deal with, what's the quality of your witness to the world? What is that? Yeah, you're saved, but what's the quality of your witness? Because as I mentioned a minute ago, what I, what I failed to take into account was that it was separating me from God. Slowly but subtly separating me from God. Because the power of sin in that way still had control over my life. Essentially, sanctification is the process of exchanging or surrendering our will to God's will. And the byproduct of that is that sin has less control over you. Now, I need to foot stomp this because this is, this is God's desire for you and I. His desire is not, not that we just come to church and fellowship with his believers, but that we that we more and more experience the power over sin in our lives. That's part of why he came. But for many of us, as a commentary suggests, that it's an unopened gift still sitting unwrapped. And here's what happens. The more you and I experience God's power, Christ's power, over the sin in our lives, our life becomes a stronger witness. Our life, our light for Christ becomes brighter for the world when we embrace what he's done. So Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately from the presence of sin. This process is known as glorification. Jesus wants to deal with sin because everything negative in your life and in my life is related to, directly or indirectly, the presence of sin. Everything negative in our lives. The truth is, even though we can have more and more power over sin as we grow as believers, the truth is, as long as you and I live, as long as we live, we'll always struggle with the presence of sin in our lives and in the world. This is why 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And I came to remind you today that this is also what Christ dealt with for you and for me. But glorification is Jesus saving us from the presence of sin. And this is the promise of heaven, right? There will be no more sin there. Everybody in heaven will be absolutely set free from the penalty, from the power, but also the presence of sin. This is why Revelation 21 says that nothing, nothing sinful, nothing unclean will be in that place. Heaven is a place of perfection beyond our wildest imagination. So Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day the presence of sin, 
But why does he save us? Why does he save us? What does he save us for? I'm glad you asked. Jesus saves us for many things, but I want to highlight two. The first is he saves us for unbroken fellowship. Unbroken fellowship. I want to remind you that Christ's desire for you and for me is unbroken fellowship. Unbroken fellowship. His desire is that you and I would not allow sin to separate us from him. Not that we wouldn't experience sin, not that we not, would not commit sin, but that that sin would not separate us from him because we have an advocate named Jesus that died. That became the bridge of that sin. So he saves us for unbroken fellowship, not just etern- in eternity, but here on earth. Why? Because he loves us, right? We know, we know John 3.16. Right? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. But not just eternal life, but abundant life. And so he saves us for unbroken fellowship because God knows that we're going to go through some things in this life, right? In fact, he said we would. He said we would. But he doesn't want the things that we go through, the problems that we face, to separate us from him. He wants you and I to know and to discern his presence and love even in the difficult times we face. Even in those tough emotions that some of us may be feeling right now. So he saves us for the purpose of unbroken fellowship, but he also saves us so that we can share that fellowship with other people so that we can help other people find and follow him. We said this before, but God doesn't, save, God doesn't save us just for us. When he saved you, he had somebody else in mind, right? You guys heard my story. When he saved, when he saved Rodney Parker, he had Rodney Gray in mind. When he saved Rodney Gray, he had other people in mind. And so how many people know that you're, you're a believer? How many people know? How many people in your circle can bear witness to your unbroken fellowship with Christ? How many people? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a part of why he saved you and I. Not just so we, so we can share Christ during the Christmas season, but we can share that fellowship everywhere we go. That's what Jesus did. Jesus gave everybody he met a piece of his relationship with God. That's what he did. And you and I are called to do the same thing so that the world may know in the midst of all the competing voices and competing distractions, in the midst of conflicting emotions, I love God today. I'm not sure where I am with God tomorrow. In the midst of various insecurities that we all have, he wants the world to know that Jesus is not a way. He's the way. Mentioned last week that many of us believe that you're a God and I'm a God and you can do whatever you want. This is what Jesus wants the world to know, that he is not a way, he is the way. Because while those those things that we run to for comfort, they might bring temporary relief, the truth is only Jesus saves. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus loved you enough to deal with the penalty, power, and presence of sin. Only Jesus did. Okay, Rodney, so Jesus saves, now what? Now what? I began today by asking you the question, who or what have you been trusting to save you? 
with that, I'm not saying that the things that bring us relief and comfort are irrelevant, right? I'm not saying that God won't use people in various situations to save us and bring relief or comfort to our lives. In fact, when I was 10 years old, my Aunt Joyce had to save me from drowning in a swimming pool. Not sure what I was thinking, jumping in the pool knowing I couldn't swim. Can't answer that part for you. But I jumped in the pool and my Aunt Joyce had to jump in and she had to save me. She had to save me from drowning. Now, while that's different from the way Jesus saved me, it was certainly a necessary part of my story. Because without that, I would have probably met Jesus face to face a little earlier than I would have liked to. Without that, I wouldn't have married my best friend. Without that, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to serve you all. I say that because I don't want you to hear me wrong with this. It's not that pastors and counselors and therapists don't have a place. Chris Payne is my pastor too. I have coaches too. I have therapists too. What I'm asking is, is who has your heart? Who has your heart? Have you turned to Jesus to save you from everything but your sin? The very thing that separates you from him? Verse 24 in our scripture says that Joseph woke up. Joseph woke up. I believe that was literally and spiritually. He woke up. The next two words says, Joseph woke up. He did. Joseph woke up, and then he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him to. And I believe that many of us have been sleeping on who God is and what he's done for us. And maybe today is the day that you wake up. Maybe today is the day that you wake up to every good and every perfect thing that God has for you. Friends, I believe that when we wake up to what God has for us, it's Christmas every single day. The reason that's important is because a lot of the people that we know, even people that, we come, that come to church every week, are still asleep to the plans and the purposes that God has for them. Maybe today's your day to wake up. Regardless of how long you've been fellowshipping with Christ. Maybe you haven't been in fellowship with Christ. Maybe today for you is the day that you wake up. The day that you finally allow God to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. So with that, I don't want to take for granted that everybody in here has received or even embraced God's greatest gift. I mentioned a few weeks ago that our biggest need is God's greatest gift, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And so I'm going to ask that all over this room that you would bow your head and that you would close your eyes because we want to make space for the people in this room that either have not received him or either have not embraced him. We want to make space for them today. 
So Father, we pray that you would move. We pray that you would move in the hearts of your people right now. You know exactly where we are. You know, you know exactly what we struggle with. And I'm asking that since your spirit is the authority in this place, that you would move right now. That all over this room, you would begin to wake your people up to either receive you or to either embrace you in a new way. You're faithful, God. Do it, God. Do it, God. Father, we thank you for loving us unconditionally. We ask God in this moment that you would forgive us for trusting in self-reliance, for trusting in religion, for trusting in things that seem right in our eyes, but that are wrong in yours. We thank you for the grace to begin anew right now. Whether we've been walking with you or whether we're choosing to obey you and begin our journey with you today, we're grateful. And so for those of you here today that you feel God nudging you to begin your journey, I want you, to, I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Say, God, I believe Jesus Christ is your son and that he died on the cross to save me from my sin. Say, God, I believe that Jesus rose from the grave and that right now in this moment, he invites me to be a part of your forever family. Because of what Jesus has done, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to give me eternal life. I invite you into my heart. God, I invite you into my life. I want to trust you, Jesus, as my Savior. And I want to follow you as my Lord. Help me to live my life in a way that honors you, in a way that brings you glory. In Jesus' name. And God, I pray now for those of us who may already know you. Maybe we're already in a relationship with you, but maybe we've been wounded by the sins of others. We've stepped away from you. God, I pray that you would help us to know that you save us from those sins too. And I pray that you would help us to embrace that power and to receive it in our hearts so that it no longer has control over us. For you are sovereign, you are king, and you are savior. Thank you for loving us the way you do. In Jesus' name, amen.